Well, hello everyone. Welcome to today's webinar on making the FLSA work for you. The FLSA is a topic that has been of strong interest to members throughout CSMFO and their human resources colleagues because it's a very challenging area. And so this is an important one for us to be addressing. This is part of the coaching program under CSMFO that has been launched and undergoing uh, its operations for the last 21 years with Laura Nomura now serving as the uh, committee chair for the Career Development Committee. We have about a dozen volunteers that help us in identifying topics like this and presenters uh, to help you uh, get the information that you need. We're going to be hitting uh, what are the danger zones in payroll and timekeeping, how do you handle regular rate of pay, work periods, proper compensation for all hours worked, etc., and what are some uh, key tips for you in your uh, practice and compliance efforts around these uh, topics. We're delighted to have Oliver Yee, who's a partner in Liebert Cassidy Whitmore. Uh, he leads the firm's uh, audit services practice team. He's a specialist on Fair Labor Standards Act and all the negotiations and things that go around that. He's an active labor negotiator, been involved in class action suits on these topics of FLSA. Uh, so he's really been in the thick of it, and we're delighted that he's joined us today. Uh, and we have June Overholt, who is presenting herself uh, not as an expert of this field, but as, uh, as your colleague, uh, seeking to share with you some perspective she has and some empathy for all of you that are out there practicing. Uh, so we're delighted to have her. She has 23 years of experience in local government, uh, and she is Administrative Services Director in Glendora. Uh, and so she is covering both the human resources side and the finance side. So she's the perfect person for today's session uh, and is active in the negotiations that happen. And I'm Don Maruska, a Master Certified Coach and Director of the CSMFO Coaching Program. Glad that you're all with us. We're going to go to a polling question. Well, this is our first of six. Uh, let me invite you to uh, participate in that. We're interested in how many are attending from your locations. Uh, that gives us a read on how many we have in our audience in total. But even more importantly, it tells us how well we're doing in attracting uh, teams to engage in these webinars, because that's the best way we've found for everyone to learn to go forward. So while you're doing that, again, we encourage you to uh, take some time to uh, enter questions that you may have about FLSA. We'll try to hit as many as we can. Many of them are very fact-specific, so we'll have to see which ones we can cover uh, without delving into the uh, deep details of your particular organization. I do ask the questions on your behalf anonymously, so uh, you can ask whatever you wish without uh, identification of you or your organization. We want everyone to feel comfortable to be a, a learner and you learn by asking questions and engaging in a topic. So we're going to close the uh, first question here. Take a look at where we are. Uh, we see that 59% uh, of you are there on your own and others in groups of upward of uh, 10. So we're delighted that you've all joined us today and you're uh, seeking to learn about this important topic. So as we turn uh, to the presentation materials, I'd like to just come back to June for a moment. June, a couple comments that you'd uh, make here at the start uh, just to frame things for your colleagues. Yeah, thank you very much. It, it is a privilege to be on this webinar. And one of the things to remember is FLSA is a bit challenging because it's not logical. And I think that for those of us on the finance side, we always like things to be logical. 
And when we see something like FLSA, it just does not compute. So just remember that it's the legislation that came up with these ideas, and Oliver is here to help uh, help us understand it and make sense of it. So take notes and and also be prepared that there might be more questions even after the webinar is done, so that you can you can know how to get help. And so make sure that you take advantage of making notes. That's okay, it. Okay. Well, thank you so much. So so let's uh, turn to Oliver here and. Uh, We'll take uh, ourselves off the screen, and Oliver, there you go. You're all set. Welcome. Okay. Let's see here. Do I don't have the PowerPoint on here. Ah. I have my face, but I don't have. Oh, there it is. Okay, great. Okay. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Oliver Yee. Again, I'm a partner in the Los Angeles office of Liebert Cassidy Whitmore. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our firm, we represent public agencies across the state on labor and employment matters. Um, as Don mentioned, you know, one of my um, areas of specialty is the FLSA and our wage and hour practice. Uh, I've handled uh, litigation in the class collective action environment, and I also conduct FLSA audits and payroll audits uh, for agencies across the state. And as June mentioned, you know, this can be a challenging area, especially for our finance departments. And uh, part of the reason for that challenge is that the FLSA is complicated and sometimes not logical. And there are a lot of layers involved with the FLSA that really depend on a number of factors, including you know, what your policies are at your agency, you know, collective bargaining agreements or MOUs, and then also the types and natures of pays um, that we'll uh, soon learn about that vary uh, depending on agencies. So oftentimes with the FLSA, you know, we want to get a one-size-fits-all solution, but unfortunately, those are hard to come by. And, uh, you know, I think one big takeaway from today is that we're not going to figure out, um, unfortunately, all the solutions uh, today to specific issues, but hopefully have a general understanding of the main issues, especially when it comes to overtime uh, rate calculations so that we can uh, better equip ourselves with um, issues going forward. Another uh, main takeaway is, is that even if we are able to get through the calculation side, you know, the implementation side can be complex as well. Um, can involve labor relations, namely, you know, um, impacting our, our pay now and have, uh, you know, union implications and, and, and uh, meet and confer implications. And then finally, a main takeaway is, is, is that, you know, we're going to learn that there's a lot of um, updates to the law. Um, as June mentioned, this is a, a piece of legislation which oftentimes gets interpreted and updated as we go through the years. So it's really important that we ensure that we keep up to date with with the changes to the law. And we'll cover a couple of those main changes in, in recent years. So just a brief overview for our agenda for this afternoon. Um, we will cover you know, basic timekeeping practices um, and concepts uh, covered by the FLSA on those practices. Uh, the main one being you know, what constitutes hours worked under the FLSA. We'll also talk about some common payroll errors um, that we'll see 
and a notice, as I mentioned, a big part of my practice is auditing payroll practices. So I'll share with you some of the common errors that I'll see when I go through an audit for an agency. Um, we'll go over some more common pay codes and some of the um, traps that you might see um, in, with, in regards to the FLSA with our pay codes. And then finally, I have some tips for you to take away um, from the training and session. Okay, so one of the things we want to be doing today is to dial in this uh, presentation as much as possible to the topics that are of particular concern to you. So this is a chance for you to highlight, you know, where you're seeing issues and uh, which topics are of particular interest. You can click any or all that apply to you. Uh, we're, these are all going to be covered in some measure today, but uh, time is precious and we want to be sure we're responding to you as best as we can. And a lot of questions are coming in from you. That's great. I'm noticing that a num um, all the questions thus far are ones that are actually going to be addressed in the course of the session. So uh, with the exception of one of them that uh, we'll be needing to clarify along the way on pay period. Uh, so thanks for your questions. Uh, we'll be sure we're feathering in your responses and able to uh, get as many of the things on your mind addressed as possible. Within all those caveats that Oliver shared with you about the complexity of this and the fact specificity of all of these determinations. So we're just wrapping up this uh, polling question here and we'll be coming out to, with the results and see where we land here. Okay, so let's take a look at where it turns out. Well, clearly the um, tracking and recording of FLSA hours and the calculations are highly important, but all the all the topics that you've identified are of interest to our audience here. So, uh, but those seem to be the two to zero in on and responding to our this particular audience's needs. So thank you for responding to that. And let's go back to the presentation that's going to reveal these issues. Right, so as I mentioned, um, you know, this uh, pyramid really illustrates uh, the layers of uh, 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 overtime calculations and the FLSA and payroll um, analysis that, you know, you'll see is you've got, you know, the FLSA is a piece of the pyramid, but then you also have your MOU or CBA um, adding to the equation. And then you have all the, also some tax implications as well. And then in the middle of it is your payroll. So um, you know the 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 big question that we we oftentimes get then is okay when we talk about our payroll system does it address you know all these pieces of the pyramid because if it doesn't then we may be out of compliance in one area so again you know when we're looking at payroll assessment we really do need to take a holistic approach um, that covers all the layers um, including FLSA including the MOU and other areas as well. So let's just talk about some basics um, on the FLSA and um, terms. And this term that you'll see there is bold is going to be is one of the areas that you've identified as an important one for our discussion is this concept of regular rate of pay. And notice that it's different from hourly rate. It's not the same as your base hourly rate. It's a different rate. It's a slightly higher rate depending on the special pays that are provided to the employee. So I oftentimes use the example that you can, let's say, have an employee that makes $20 an hour as their base hourly rate. 
if they receive special pays on top of their base pay, we'll go over some examples of special pays later, that uh, hourly rate goes up for the purposes of calculating FLSA overtime. So, you know, it could go up to $20.80 or $21.20 for the calculation of FLSA overtime. Now, you can imagine if, um, you know, the payroll system still uses that $20 per hour, that base hourly rate for calculating FLSA overtime, even if the employee has special pays, in which case then, you know, the employee is being underpaid um, to the tune of that extra bit that increases the base hourly rate to that higher regular rate of pay. So if they should be getting $20.80, for example, uh, as their hourly rate for overtime under the FLSA, they're getting $0.80 cents every time hour underpaid. Um, other requirements, of course, is just timely payment um, and that the wages are due on a regularly scheduled payday. So our first uh, main area of, of topic to, that we'll cover uh, this afternoon is, is taking a look at this tracking or recording all hours work because that's really the foundation for calculating overtime. Are we capturing the hours worked by the employee? And again, this concept of hours worked isn't as simple as it seems. You know, we think of hours worked, okay, is that physically working? Is it physical labor? Is it something more? What does our MOU say when it comes to hours worked? These are all gonna be factors as we saw earlier in that pyramid that can play a role in that determination. The FLSA also has its own definition of what hours worked, which we're gonna go over. Another foundational principle, of course, is the main maintenance of accurate time records. Um, you know, there is no requirement that we have a time clock to record time. Many agencies don't, although now we're seeing a shift in that with um, the use of, uh, you know, fingerprint technology. Um, but for the most part, uh, folks are either entering their time on a portal system or even on just a traditional time card or timesheet. Um, Nevertheless, it's the employer's obligation to maintain accurate time records and to ensure that employees are, are also um, inputting accurate time into their time sheets and time records. Of course, we want to make sure we're tracking these hours and paying employees uh, pursuant not just to what they are inputting, but to what they're actually working. And this is a key component to the FLSA. Um, is that, you know, even if an employee writes down 10 hours, if they're working a 10-hour day, but in fact, they're working 11 hours, and they say, well, you know, I don't want to put down 11 because I don't, I know we're not authorized to have overtime in my department, or I just want to volunteer that time, uh, that's against the law, that the FLSA prohibits that kind of practice. The employee has to be paid for all hours worked. So that obligation is not on the employee, it's on the employer where the employer is now on the hook for paying that extra hour of overtime work because the employee actually worked that time, irrespective of what they put on that time record or time card. Okay, so um, there's also in a requirement on, on timeliness. We'll talk about that and where things can get a little tricky um, when it comes to pay periods and work periods not being aligned. But generally speaking, you know, we're looking at timely payment of, of, of not just wages, but also overtime. 
So some uh, basic principles on timekeeping policies, um, and we have a sample coming up, but these are just um, some good practice uh, policies that if, if you don't have um, in your overtime uh, policies or personal handbook or, or personal or employee handbook, um, you know, these are some uh, uh, key provisions that you might want to consider and include. So the first is uh, a statement by the employee in the form, for example, that they fill out that that they verify that whatever time they're submitting is accurate. Okay. Um, another uh, key policy is that you know the supervisor actually approved that time. So you'll see, of course, on a time record, the supervisor signing off on that time record, um, and that also the employee who's overtime eligible um, must acknowledge and agree that they've recorded all of the time they've actually worked. It kind of goes to my earlier um, uh, situation where the employee records something differently. Notice that the remedy is not to not, is not, not paying the employee or underpaying the employee, but rather disciplining the employee for failure to accurately report the time worked. Again, if they don't have that notification through the policy and form, then we wouldn't be able to continue on with accountability or discipline. So it's important that they have that notification. But remember, we're paying the employee. So this notion that, well, if they didn't report their time, that's on there, that's that's too bad for them, you know, that's on them, not the case. The FLSA requires that they get paid for all time worked. Another key policy is requiring approval of overtime at the supervisory or managerial level, meaning that an employee can, does not have the right to unilaterally decide he or she wants to work overtime. They have to have pre-approval or authorization to work it. There's another concept called rounding of time in the de minimis rule. So, you know, your agencies typically either um, utilize six-minute increments or up to 15-minute increments. That's okay, but we cannot overtime uh, round to the detriment of the employee. So we don't want to have a system in place where we're always rounding down um, unless it's at the appropriate fraction. Um, there's another rule called the de minimis rule, and that is a rule that relates to, um, you know, just if it's a minute here, a couple minutes there, you know, employee writes down 9 a.m. on their card, it's actually 8.58 you know, the FLSA has some reasonableness to it in that, you know, that two minutes is just going to be offset over time. Um, but again, if it's that's different from saying, okay, you know, this employee is starting at 8.50 or 8.55 every day um, consistently, um, that's where, you know, we don't, uh, we don't have application of this de minimis rule. It's a one-off, once-in-a-blue-moon type situation. We also want to be thoughtful about exemption status and not deducting um, for our exempt employees for not having work time. So this is just an example of a uh, time record policy statement that an employee can certify to um, that you can utilize certainly, and remember that this would not be the only component to the timesheet or, or time record policy or overtime policy. Um, in your actual overtime policy, you want to ensure some of these other components that I mentioned in the earlier slide as well. In terms of just review and assessment of, of your payroll practices when it comes to timekeeping compliance, you know, things to look for, there's this concept called off-the-clock work. I mentioned that 
um, in an example earlier, coming in early, staying in late. Um, of course, if it's for a significant amount of time, meaning over and above your minimum uh, uh, timekeeping standard of the six or 15 minutes, they need to be reporting that time as overtime. You can imagine if this is a consistent issue, um, meaning you know, employee consistently is logging in and starting work 15 minutes early every day, um, that's not the minimus anymore because you know, in a matter of uh, one work week, the employee already has one hour of overtime, you can imagine, over the course of three years. Another issue is this failure to actually report all-time work. So the situation where employees just routinely put nine to five or eight hours or 10 hours on their time record over and over and over again, despite the fact that that's not actually what's happening. What's actually happening is that people are staying late, coming in early. Um, FLSA doesn't care about what that time record is going to say. It's going to say, well, what's the, you know, what does the employee testifying to? Because they're going to ultimately say, well, yeah, I was told or there was an expectation that I had to put in just 10 hours or eight hours, but in fact, I worked more, my supervisors knew, and that's all that matters. Once the supervisor knows or management knows, then um, they've worked that time. I mentioned earlier that rounding error where it's to the detriment of the employee can be problematic if it's done in each case um, um, rounding down. And then we'll talk about adjustments of time um, and the dangers of that later too, but you know, people should be reflecting time they work not, well, I'm going to put 10 hours today knowing that I'm going to come in early two hours the following week. Um, and it's so what we're doing is now not accurately reflecting time worked, thinking, well, I'm just going to make it up. That can have perils when it comes to actual overtime. And then, of course, timely submission of all these records uh, to payroll. So can your payroll system actually administer these FLSA work periods? So this was another question um, on our poll that uh, came up as an important issue for, for, for you is this notion of FLSA work period. So first off, there is a difference, of course, between the FLSA work period and the pay period. Okay, so that's a critical point because your pay period is not a function of the law. It's not a function of the FLSA. It's a function of your payroll system. The work period is a function of the law. It's a function of the FLSA. It's something very different from your pay period. Um, and we'll see this play out in, in our um, sample or hypothetical situation with the 980 work schedule. Um, but, and we'll also see it in, um, for those of you who have uh, safety employees as well, where you have a, a, a work period that's not traditional um, seven day work work week or work period. Um, so this notion that we have an 80 uh, hour pay period or two week pay period, therefore our overtime threshold is 80 hours or two weeks, that's not correct. Um, unless you have a safety, uh, if we're talking about safety, we'll get into that later, but if, unless um, it's safety, your miscellaneous employees are on a 40 hour work week work period. 40 hours is the threshold for FLSA overtime, not 80 hours. So that's going to be a common error, right? Is this notion of calculating overtime based on a pay period basis instead of the FLSA work week or work, work period basis. It's a common issue. Um, you know, we just 
you know, it's much easier, of course, to just utilize the 80-hour pay period. Um, I think some uh, once we moved into 980 work uh, schedules, um, I think that also contributed to this, where we think, well, it's a 980 work schedule, so 80 is the overtime threshold. And again, that's not correct under the law, under the FLSA. Um, we'll go to go over how a 980 work schedule um, works out from a work period basis um, in a moment. And then, of course, ensuring that your payroll system is actually calculating the um, uh, overtime rate properly by actual hours and work, not just the regular scheduled hours work. So, in other words, we're not just saying, okay, the individual's scheduled for this amount of time um, and not actually looking at did they actually work that time and what hours did they actually work. Um, we'll talk later about this dual calculation method. This, again, goes to this layered uh, process of, of including our MOU into the equation. And then, you know, smoothing, meaning, you know, we treat our non-exempt or overtime eligible employees much like our salaried or exempt employees, where we don't uh, pay them, and this goes to the timing issue of not paying them their overtime in a timely manner because we smoothed out overtime over the course of a year. Again, not okay under the FLSA. And then, you know, this common issue as well, we've got an inefficient or outdated payroll system. Unfortunately, that's not a defense to FLSA liability. So much like we saw a layered um, uh, aspect to the FLSA, there's a layered aspect to this concept of, of work period. As you can see, work period, pay period, and work schedule are different concepts, distinct concepts that overlap and intersect. So that's the key to, uh, point to take away is that although they are distinct concepts, they do overlap. And so it's important that that overlap is done appropriately and handled appropriately through your payroll system. So notice again, work period, we're talking about the measurement of overtime under the FLSA, that's your 40 hour work week threshold. Your work schedule is your 980, your 410, your 58. Your pay period is your typical 14 day, bi-monthly or monthly pay period. So this is the common trap, right? Is you have a 40 hour work week with an 80 hour pay period. And remembering that overtime is measured on this 40 hour work period basis. And that every employee actually ha should have, and if they haven't um, been designated, should be designated an FLSA work week. So this is where you see oftentimes, you know, somewhere in a, in a, in a um, payroll policy, overtime policy, that the work period or FLSA work week starts on you know, midnight of, of Sunday ending at 11.59 on Saturday. Those are your typical, that's a typical, you know, language for your 168 recurring hours or seven consecutive 24-hour periods for, for a 40-hour FLSA work week. That's not going to work for a 980 schedule. We'll see why. Um, and that's where you have to have that split day on the regular day off. But every employee uh, who is overtime eligible, which is our non-exempt employees, have to have a designated FLSA work meet that's intended to be permanent, meaning that we're not changing that work week uh, start and end time um, on a weekly basis or on a regular basis. There are times when we can change, like if somebody moves to a new schedule or um, 
once in a blue moon, but not something that's regularly changing. It's intended to be permanent. Notice this notion again, another trap is, well, can we offset? Meaning that if we'll see this come up with the 980, um, employee works 37 hours in the first week and 43 hours in the second week. Well, that's 80 hours, so no overtime. That's not correct because the second week where they've worked 43 hours, that's three hours over the 40-hour threshold. That's three hours of FLSA overtime. It's not 80 hours. It's 40 hours. And it just so happens that in the other week, the employee worked 37 hours and didn't work any overtime and under the 40-hour threshold. Um, so you see that example there, 36 hours in week one, 44 hours in week two. We have four hours of FLSA overtime in week two. Ah, so our 980, that's um, now more and more common, understandably so. Um, it allows for some greater operational efficiency, allows for us to be open on every other Friday. But it also opens uh, the door to this issue of work period and ensuring that the work period is properly designated, the start and end time. So you see that in this chart. Notice when the start and end time is for the 980 schedule. So this is, should be how your 980 FLSA work period should look like, meaning that the start and end time of your FLSA work period is going to be on that regular day off Friday. In this case, it's Friday, the eight-hour regular day off, midway through that day. Why is it going to have to be midway through that day? Well, let's do some simple math. <laughs> so as you can see, that first week there, you have nine, 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 nine. That's 36 hours. Remember, 40 hours is our threshold. If we get to the midpoint of that Friday, that's half of the day of the eight-hour day. We've got 40 hours and one side there of the first week, which is shaded blue, and then four hours starting the second week, shaded white, with nine, 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 36 hours. So as you can see there, over the course of those two weeks, we have a total of 80 hours split evenly between two 40-hour work weeks. Now, if we did our traditional, which we used to do with 410 schedules or 58 schedules, if we were to start the start and end time on that Saturday midnight, or I'm sorry, Sunday midnight end at 11.59, we're in trouble in week one, because if we have a FLSA designated work week that started on that Sunday and ended on that Saturday, how many hours do we have in that first week worked? 44 hours. Remember, it's on a, even though the total of 80 over two weeks, we don't care about the total of 80. We care about that first 40 hours. We're over the threshold. And we've got 44 hours in week one, 36 hours in week two, and the concern, of course, is that this isn't a one-off, right? Because if our payroll system is automatically doing this each and every other week, we've got an inadvertent situation where every other week here, there's four hours of overtime owed to this employee just by virtue of the way the payroll system is set up and not accounting for a proper start and end date time on that 40-hour uh, work week work period. So let's look at our first 
uh, case study here um, to kind of bring it to life. So we have a code enforcement officer who's on a 980 schedule and has your typical 980, right, of nine hours Monday through Thursday with that alternating eight-hour Friday, um, bi-weekly pay periods, so similar to what we saw in the earlier chart. So week one, Jules works her regular work schedule. This is the Monday through Friday. And on Friday, works three additional hours attending an evening meet community meeting to provide support to a case she works on. So that three additional hours, if we kind of look at this chart on the other slide, goes on the back end, not on the front end because it was in the evening of Friday, right? Week two, Jules works her regular schedule Monday through Thursday, but takes four hours off on Tuesday to take her child to a medical appointment. So she works half a day on Tuesday. Does she work any overtime? Well, yes, she worked those three additional hours in that week two, but then if we looked at Tuesday, right, we take four off of there, so now she's only worked five hours on that Tuesday, so we don't actually have FLSA overtime in week two because you know, she's worked 39 hours, not 40. But what if Jules switched her regularly scheduled day off in week two? That's where things can change. So going back to our chart here, if she ended up working that Friday in week two, we're in trouble, right? Um, meaning that now we've got overtime uh, because that off-off will be hours instead. So it's really important with 980 in particular that we keep an eye out. You know, this is common, especially Fridays. You know, we think of the situ typical situation where an employee comes to their supervisor and says, you know, I've got a road trip this weekend. I'm going to leave a little early um, or coming in a little early and leave early and I'll make it up the following Monday. And inadvertently, when a supervisor says, oh, that makes sense, it balances out, you know, if you're going to come in two hours early today um, and come in too early um, or, and, and, um, and just make it up on Monday or leave two hours early and make it up, you know, the following week, they seem, it seems like it balances out. But if you do that, you know, you can have inadvertent consequences where we actually have overtime as a result of that accommodation of you know, uh, especially on that Friday. So when we talk about adjustment, so if the employee comes in, um, leaves early on Tuesday, right, in this situation, comes in early on Wednesday to make it up, we don't have an issue. But if we have that kind of adjustment on the regular day off that Friday, we can have inadvertent creation of FLSA overtime. Now, just to add another layer to this, remember the pyramid, it showed the MOU. A lot of agencies have what we call daily overtime, meaning that the over employee is owed overtime, not just under the FLSA, but also under this daily overtime concept, which is a more generous benefit that the agency has decided to give to the employee as a matter of contract. So for example, in that, um, if the employee comes in early on Tuesday, or I'm sorry, leaves early on Tuesday, comes in early on Wednesday, two hours, and works 11 hours on Wednesday, they may not be owed overtime on the F, under the FLSA, but they could be owed overtime under the MOU because of that provision in the MOU that says that there's daily overtime. So again, you know, we want to do our employees a favor, we want to accommodate them, but sometimes we don't realize that that accommodation can actually have impacts on 
overtime being owed to them under either the FLSA or under the MOU or under our own personnel policy on overtime. I mentioned that safety has a special uh, place when it comes to work periods and they call it the 7K or 207K work period, which can be longer than the seven days, 40 hour uh, threshold. Um, this is just to um, recognize that safety employees often work, you know, 24 hour shifts or even longer than um, continuous days. So, you know, the FLSA created a carve out for them that allows for a work period to last up to 28 consecutive days. And there's a chart uh, um, illustra um, illustrated in the actual statute that sets up the overtime uh, threshold hours for each of the days in those um, 28 consecutive days um, from 7 to 28. Now, where do we run into an issue with work period and pay period not aligning? So if we don't, if we have, let's say, a 24-day work period for one of our safety uh, groups and we're on a bimonthly or 14-day pay period cycle, they're not aligned. So we got to make sure that our payroll system and software is accounting for that because you're going to have a discrepancy when you know you have a work period that's not on a 14-day cycle versus a pay period that is. So again, this is just another thing to keep an eye out for, especially with these 7K work periods. So common mistakes is um, we need to, of course, establish the 7K work period. Um, that can be done through the MOU or through personnel policy. Um, and also, uh, you know, we want to make sure we're updating the work period to, to correspond to our work schedules and changes. Um, we're not applying the 7K. So this is another common where we're saying, well, does this apply to our civilian employees in fire safety? No, it doesn't. It only applies to those who are defined under the law as a peace officer or, or engaged in fire suppression, i.e. firefighters. So dispatchers, no, you know, records clerk, no. Uh, other types of civilian employees in police and fire do not uh, get the 7K exemption. They get our 40-hour, uh, seven-day um, work week uh, threshold. Okay, as I mentioned, you know, with our uh, total hours worked and FLSA overtime threshold, it is 40 hours over the seven-day work week. Um, and then you have carve-outs for law enforcement and fire protection. So the important takeaway here to ensure FLSA compliance is what are those hours actually worked and what is the correct work period for the employee that's been designated for that employee. Remember our pyramid, uh, we've got this intersection in our Zen, Zen, uh, Venn diagram too with the contract or MOU overtime and FLSA overtime. So the FLSA does not um, actually require daily overtime. Um, that's a, a, a product of contract, meaning that agencies have decided either by a policy or by uh, uh, collective bargaining to provide a greater benefit that's more generous than the floor FLSA requirement of 40 hours in the work week. Daily overtime is common. Um, it's not uncommon. Um, so if you have it, you're not alone. Another common, more generous benefit is 
goes to this concept of hours worked, okay? And that you'll see in an MOU or collective bargaining agreement, a provision that says that leave time, sick leave, vacation leave, holidays are counted as hours worked, even if obviously the employee is not working during those times. Does the FLSA count that time? No, but under your MOU, it is. So this gets to get, you know, we'll talk later about the dual calculation method and offsets, but what ends up happening is that the employer, the agency ends up paying overtime more generously than what the FLSA requires by including these leave um, hours as hours worked. So you'll have situations where the employees may be entitled to the more generous contract overtime, but not any FLSA overtime. Now, here's we're going to talk more uh, about the regular rate of pay, that special overtime rate. That, again, when it comes to contract or MOU overtime, there's, the law does not require that the um, MOU or more generous overtime is, uses that regular rate of pay. But again, some agencies have decided as a matter of ease in, in many instances to their payroll system to just calculate the MOU or more generous overtime using that higher regular rate of pay. But there's no requirement to do so. Some agencies have, that do, have two um, um, sets of calculations. They have the MOU overtime, which they use base hourly rate for, which you know the employee, that $20 an hour, for example. And then for the FLSA overtime, have another uh, uh, calculation, which uses the regular rate that is required by law for the FLSA overtime. Um, so, you know, uh, that again is just depending on maybe the payroll system sophistication um, and policy orientation of the agency as to whether they want to calculate MOU overtime more generously or at its minimum threshold. Um, the parties may also agree to that in the MOU, kind of to June's point earlier that you know, what it says in the MOU is going to govern. So, you know, if it says all overtime, including MOU overtime, must be calculated using the regular rate, then that's what the contract says we're obligated to. Um, but if it says the MOU overtime is calculated at base rate, um, FLSA overtime is calculated at regular rate, then we can have two separate forms of calculation for overtime. So that's where we get this dual calculation. Um, so if you're not familiar with this method or side-by-side -side calculation, it comes up, especially in my world, when we're starting to calculate damages and overtime back pay owed um, under the FLSA. So what this really entails is, a, is exactly how it sounds. It's this dual calculation, side-by-side -side calculation, where we calculate the amount of FLSA, or FLSA overtime and the MOU overtime, and we compare the two to make sure that the person has been underpaid. Because if during that work period, work week or work period, the employee ends up getting paid more than what the employee is owed under the FLSA, then we don't have an underpayment, right? Because they've been paid more than what the FLSA requires. That's why you have this dual calculation. That's where you see that second bullet point of this comparing of the results. That's what that means. So that's why it's an important um, issue for us when we're dealing with a claim or a, a lawsuit um, in calculating overtime back pay owed or damages because then we're going to be using this calculation method to essentially offset um, the, MO, the more generous MOU overtime in certain situations to that um, lower standard under the FLSA.
So um, the basic premise, of course, of the FLSA is all time suffered or permitted uh, by an employer are hours worked under the FLSA. And I know that sounds really legalese, but I'll, I'll try to distill it and make it really simple, is if the employee is working, you know, whether they're being told to do it or whether they, quote unquote, volunteer to do it, if they're working, they need to be paid for that time. It's really that simple. Um, there's no such thing as a overtime eligible employee saying, you know, I'll come in on a Saturday. It's on me. Um, I just want to be a team player, volunteer that time. The FLSA doesn't care about that. It cares about if they're performing work. If they are, they're getting paid for that time. This notion of suffered or permitted goes to little nuance on, you know, especially when it gets to my world of the lawsuit, right? Is that if the employer, and when we talk about employer, we're talking about supervisors or managers, if they know or should have known that the employee is performing this work, then that triggers payment of that time. And you might say, well, how will I, how will I should have known? Well, you know, again, there's, you know, we think of that email, right? Uh, overtime eligible employee sends an email at eight o'clock at night. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm still looking at this report, trying to figure this out. You know, can you help me on this and clarify this? Lo and behold, you know, we get their time card. It's 40 hours and we know they were in their office, you know, all week long. So what were they doing at eight o'clock? Well, they were working and we're on notice. We got that email at eight o'clock. We didn't say, did you put in time? You know, why are you working now? Put in that time, make sure you put in time. We're on notice, managers notice, supervisors now notice. Um, that's why it's really important. We look back at those, that earlier slide on policy um, that employees, it's very clear to them that they're not to be doing this sort of thing. They're not to be working off the clock. And that if they are, meaning they're working any time beyond their scheduled work hours, that they need to get supervisor or manager's approval and authorization before they do that. Um, no coming in early, no staying in late, no working through lunch if it's you know um, unpaid meal period, um, unless they get their supervisor or manager's authorization because that's overtime. Okay, so um, that's the, that's what this is based off of this premise. So there are a lot of um, you know grayish type areas that come into play in this concept of hours worked. Um, you know, we I mentioned the easy ones, which is like you know um, they're sitting at their desk, they're doing work. Um, but again, I mentioned at the outset. Right, that unfortunately there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer oftentimes to the more gray nuanced areas. So as you can see, here are some examples. You know, travel time, good example. You know, we wanna say, you know, just tell me, you know, if they're traveling and it's work-related, should it be included or should it not be included? Well, fortunately, <laughs> it's gonna depend on a number of factors, um, you know, is it their regular work location? Um, is it um, beyond their uh, normal commute time? Are you a charter city or are you a general law city? Um, are you a special district? Are you a county? Um, and then also, you know, uh, what are they doing, you know, during that uh, travel time if it's, you know, waiting time and they're engaged in personal pursuits? 
So all sorts of factors. Here's the, I think, the takeaway, especially with travel time and training time for that matter, because training time is the same thing. You know, you'll have all different types of trainings. You'll have trainings that are used for their certification. That's their own time. You'll have training that we're mandating, mandating them to go to. We'll have training that it's completely optional. We'll have training, all sorts of different kinds of training, all sorts of different types of travel time. What I recommend is having a comprehensive travel and training time policy. That way, you can answer those questions because the policy is going to state the situation. The policy is going to state the scenario and then give you the answer to that scenario. And that way, our supervisors and managers and employees, for that matter, can look to that policy and say, okay, the, which section does this fit in? Okay, it fits in this section. This is what the operation for this section or for this situation. Standby time is another one where depends on what they're doing during the stand standby time. Um, you know, if they are, if, if there is sufficient control by the employer during the standby time, it's compensable. If it's not, then it's not. So again, you know, policy, I'll oftentimes see the policy reflect this, that here's what our policy is on standby time. Here is what our expectations are for employees and managers pursuant to policy on standby time. Again, that way the policy's clear. We're not going to be checking in, you know, when we're on standby with the employee every five minutes or 10 minutes. Um, we're not having them, you know, be limited to um, a specific location, um, you know, um, within 10 minutes or five minutes from our, our work location. The policy will state the guidelines. Um, so again, I think the key here is what is having good comprehensive policies to cover these issues. Okay, that brings us to a polling question uh, that we want to get on, on how are your uh, uh, how are you tracking these uh, important issues in your systems manually or via software? So let's take a look and see what uh, is happening out there. I know we've already had a number of questions that have come in, and we've got a lot of questions, and we're a little bit behind the schedule, but you've been covering things that are really critically important here, uh, and we appreciate that, uh, Oliver. So let me just see if I can get a few quick answers. First of all, um, people are saying, okay, my payroll system doesn't cover all this stuff, but we do it, uh, you know, manually. If we do it manually and we true it all up, that's still okay, right? You don't have to have a payroll system that does all that. No, and that's, that's kind of to your, to the polling question, right? Um, you know, if you okay. do it manually, it just means it's going to be a tall order, but you can do it manually, sure, certainly. Okay. And that leads to another question here, and that is uh, people are asking, okay, if you're in a situation where you have MOUs, you have um, uh, the FLSA to consider, and you're dealing with in-house uh, police and fire. Uh, do you have any, uh, uh, if you observed any uh, payroll systems that are uh, robust at handling that? People are looking for some guidance uh, since uh, a lot of them don't have this capability. You know, what can they do? Um, and who's out there that can provide that? Do you have any uh, Observations about you know systems that seem to do better than average on these things or yeah no I <laughs> I think that might be actually a good question um, for you know the um, for colleagues um, you know based on their own yeah, experience since they're the ones working with it um, but sure. I will say this that I think um, you know what I found is in and we'll see this later that even 
payroll software that we think, you know, um, we've got a good consultant. Uh, we feel pretty confident that the consultant has given us advice on how to handle this calculation, you know, especially with police and fire can be more complicated, is, is more complicated. The trap there is that we just don't independently rely on, you know, our payroll consultant or, the, or, or software consultant telling us, well, this is, this is how it should be, we're doing it, and you're okay. Um, the FLSA is not going to be forgiving when it comes to those situations. Um, so it's really important that we internally understand these concepts in addition to what maybe the payroll software people are telling us. Okay. All right. And just to uh, make sure that it's crystal clear, uh, this person's asking, they want to verify that there are no issues on exempt employees or non-safety employees on 980 work schedules, you know, regarding the flipping of days off, the FLSA calculation, et cetera. Right. So um, if you're, I'm sorry, if for exempt employees? Yeah, for exempt employees, this, you know, uh, we're not worried. So exempt is our non-overtime eligible employees. So our managers, executive managers, et cetera. They're not owed overtime. They're not overtime eligible. So the FLSA doesn't care if they, you know, work more on one day, less on the other. Um, the FLSA is only really caring about our non-exempt, meaning our overtime eligible employees. That's where you get this issue of when it's you know, switching regular day off or working more on one day, less the other, that can have these impacts on overtime, inadvertent impacts on overtime. Okay. And let me just share the results uh, we're seeing from uh, the manual versus the payroll software handling this. We see that over half of our audience here is on manual systems uh, to try to deal with these topics. What I'm going to suggest is that uh, CSMFO does a great job of identifying resources, and this is done typically through the email list. Serve uh, first check in the resource room to see if somebody's recently asked this question and has the answer. In fact, I'll, I'll have us go do that and let you know in the automatic follow-up email whether that exists out there, uh, and if not. Um, you know, ask if somebody will launch a question on the email survey. But before you launch one, let's go see if it's already there in the resource room and has the answer for you on that. So we've got a lot more to cover. There are more questions that are here, but we'll get back to them uh, as we uh, move forward here. Let's uh, go on to our next uh, next topics. And okay, so right. So now we're talking about that um, regular rate of pay, that higher overtime rate that the FLSA requires that's over and above your base rate. This is that special overtime rate that we want to make sure we're utilizing for our FLSA overtime. Um, it is a formula. Um, it's the average hourly value of compensation paid to an employee in a work period. We'll go over that formula more specifically later. Um, the important piece to this formula or calculation is that all remuneration for employment is included, meaning that we think of special pays, um, especially with safety. There are a slew of special pays that safety um, receives, uh, fire in particular. Those special pays are going to be added on to that base pay to calculate this higher regular rate of pay. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about the, the um, uh, Flores, the landmark Flores uh, 
case, and that involves cash in lieu of health benefits. So if you've heard of the Flores case, that's an example of this regular rate of pay calculation and that, that cash in lieu of health benefits and health benefits amount being included as this remuneration piece, which wasn't previously included by agencies. Um, now the law says, yes, it must be included. Um, and so up for the last, I would say, two, three years or so, I've been working with agencies on addressing this issue, ensuring that that um, health benefit, cash and loan and health benefit piece gets included into this regular rate of pay calculation. So again, we're, we're still starting with the simple pieces of the equation, but we'll get more complicated soon enough. But the basics of it is that we're looking at total compensation, right? And that total compensation includes our pays, other than not just our base pay, divided by total hours worked. Now notice, total hours worked is not going to be the same in every work week work period. So the oftentimes question is, is can't we just have a single regular rate of pay that would apply across all of our work periods? No, you're going to have different regular rate of pays depending on the work period. Why is it going to depend on the work period? Because we're not going to have the same amount of hours worked in each work period. It's a calculation or formula that's going to vary work period to work period. Hence, we can't negotiate a lower or different rate. Um, we can do that for our MOU overtime or contract overtime, but not the FLSA. The basic, another basic foundational principle of the FLSA is you can't negotiate out of it, meaning we can't have employees waive their rights under the FLSA. If they need to be paid that overtime under the law, then the law requires it. They can't say, well, I'm going to contract out of it or contract a lower rate than what I'm owed under the, under the law. Very critical, um, the second point here, is that we understand these terms of art. When we talk about regular rate, we're not just using it loosely. We know what it means. It means that FLSA regular rate, that FLSA overtime. When we talk about base rate or base hourly rate, that's not the same as regular rate. So I think that's really important for us to understand that there is a difference. There's a difference between base rate. There's a difference between regular rate. Now, you may see some MOUs or policies say we're paying MOU overtime at regular rate. That can happen. There's nothing prohibiting that, but just recognizing that when we do that, that's a more generous benefit. It's not required by law. The FLSA overtime, however, has is required to be paid at that regular rate. So there's four basic steps to this calculation. Um, if you're doing it manually, then you're doing something along these lines or if you have a payroll system software operating, it's uh, calculating using this premise, where step one, we're identifying a work period because this is a work period by work period calculation. Step two, we're identifying total hours worked, actually worked in the work period, and whether those hours exceed the FLSA overtime threshold. So let's just use the common 40 hours. If they have not worked more than 40 hours, we're done. If they've worked more than 40 hours, we continue on. Step three, now we're going to identify the total work period pays or payments to include in this calculation, which will include, of course, base pay, but not just base pay, special pays. And we'll go over those lists in a moment. And then finally, we're calculating that regular rate by dividing the total work period compensation 
by the total hours worked in that same work period. Notice this is a work period by work period calculation, not a pay period calculation. So common errors. Well, not calculating the FLSA regular rate at all, meaning we're using base pay as our overtime time and a half um, uh, uh, method of calculation. Um, we're using that pay period instead of the FLSA work week or work period. We're not including all the special pays. We're just going off of base pay or maybe a few, but not all that's required. Um, and then we're not also breaking down the special pays to a work period equivalent. So if you have a special pay, oftentimes paid monthly or paid annually, we have to break down that pay into a work period equivalent based on the number of work periods during the year to come up with the amount. We'll see this in the next example coming up. And then we're not um, calculating rate based on all hours worked in the work period, but instead um, uh, we're using scheduled work hours, for example. So here's a list um, of what would be included. Okay, so you have some of these are more common safety in particular, but you know you'll see a lot of these um, other pays that are non-safety oriented, and even you know miscellaneous pay like you know uh, any shift differential pay, retro, um, education incentive pays, um, standby bilingual longevity, special assignment, acting out class pay. I mentioned the Flores case, cash in lieu of health benefits job performance bonus pays, merit bonuses, hazard, that's more safety, shooting safety, and attendance bonuses. So these would all be included in that formula for part, um, part three there, step three. Okay. Here are exclusions. Um, gifts that are not dependent on hours worked, payments for vacation, holiday illness, or other payments for time not worked, um, reasonable expenses, so reimbursements, uniform allowances, assuming that it's a legitimate reimbursement, um, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, other types, certain types of bonuses, um, we don't double, uh, in a sense, double dip. So when it's an overtime payment uh, that's made, that doesn't get then tacked on to the regular rate and vacation uh, PTO buybacks. So notice what's not on there. So let's sick leave cash out. Sick leave cash out, you know, um, if it's done um, at the end of at the end of employment separation and during the year, um, our recommendation is that it's included. Um, you know, there's uh, it's different. It's treated differently from vacation or even annual leave cash outs or PTO bank cash outs. Sick leave cash outs be included. Um, you know, uniform allowance. I mentioned that earlier. Um, you know, that's also not sometimes as straightforward as we think. So the law obviously will be okay with it being excluded if it's a legitimate uniform allowance. But if the evidence shows that this is way more than a uniform allowance, that's a reasonable uniform allowance, the court's going to look at that and say, no, you, what this is is actually pay that you're, you know, um, cloaking as a uniform allowance. I mean, no, no pun intended, right? So, I mean, that's that's why this um, issue of, of uh, you know, whether it's a uniform, I mentioned earlier, travel, it's not going to be uh, sometimes a simple answer where it's just a yes or no. We're going to have to find out more. What is exactly going on with that pay? What's exactly going on during that time in order to determine, you know, um, 
the application of the law on that issue. So let's look at a, a case study, our second one here. So Anne is a non-exempt um, analyst on a 410 schedule Monday through Thursday, earns $30.44 per hour. City has a bi-weekly pay period and the seven-day work week begins Sunday uh, midnight and then Saturday 11.59 p.m., pretty common. In week one of the pay period, Anne worked all of her regular schedule and hours and three additional hours on Saturday. On week two, she takes a sick day on Monday, works her regular schedule Tuesday through Thursday, and works for an additional four hours on Friday. The city counts vacation holiday and sick time as hours worked under the applicable MOU and pays overtime for any hours worked outside of the regularly scheduled hours. The MOU also states that the MOU overtime does not include cash in lieu, but includes all other special pays in the overtime rate. During the pay period, Anne receives $50 in bilingual pay, $100 in cash in lieu, and in work week two, receives an additional $75 in standby pay. What is the regular rate of pay and total, total overtime compensation in each of these two work weeks? So let's take a look at the breakdown um, using our formula. So first off, we need to convert the bilingual pay and cash in lieu into the work week equivalent. So notice that it's a, a situation of where we have to actually say, what is the work week equivalent? I think in, in this, it says here during the pay period, right? Okay, during the pay period. Now again, this is where we see that, that Venn diagram, pay period 50, pay period 100. Pay period covers what? Two work weeks. So that's why we converted to the work week equivalent of 25 and 50 for the work week. Notice we're only looking at work week one because this calculation is done on a work week, work period to work period basis. So for this work week, it's 25 and 50. Total hours worked. Remember, she worked 40 hours, her regularly worked scheduled hours, and then three additional hours. So total of 43 hours. What's her remuneration in work week one? We take her base pay of 43 uh, hours times $30.44. So that's 1308.92. We add on those bilingual pay workweek equivalent of 25 and the cash and the health benefits uh, workweek equivalent of 50. So her total remuneration is 1383.92. Then we take that total amount divided by totals hours worked, 43, and our regular rate of pay is $32.18. So remember I said that this regular rate of pay is higher? Her base pay, remember these are two different concepts. Base pay is $30.44. Regular rate of pay, on the other hand, is $32.18, higher than her base pay. So now what is her total compensation under the FLSA for this work week? We take the regular rate of pay and multiply that by total hours work, the 43, right, which is 1383.74. And then we add on the premium for that half time because we still have to account for the half on the time and the half premium. And that's where you see the three hours of overtime multiplied by 0.5, multiplied by a regular rate of pay. We add that on to our time, not time and a half, but the time portion, 
and we have a total compensation of fourteen thirty-two and one cent. Okay, so um, I won't go through the work week two in the same level of detail because you know, um, but notice that for this particular um, calculation, um, we're also accounting for the fact that uh, you know there is a MOU overtime scenario, um, and even though we may not be owed FLSA overtime under this uh, scenario, if our MOU says that all overtime, including MOU overtime, uses the regular rate of pay, then we have to calculate the regular rate for MOU overtime. Now, if our if our um, uh, MOU or policy does not state that, we can use base rate. So this again sh illustrates that um, you know layered analysis that we need to to always consider when we're um, thinking about this issue of overtime because of the unique aspect of, of, of an overlap with our OMOU um, overtime. Okay, we're gonna to go to a polling question here. Uh, see uh, how you've captured what uh, Oliver's been sharing. Uh, so which of the following pays must be included in the FLSA regular rate of pay? Click off as many as you think are included. And we'll take a look. Meanwhile, while that's happening, uh, let's take a look at uh, a couple of questions here that we can help with. Um, so what they're asking here is some clarification on a couple of different things, and that is uh, people are especially interested in um, does FLSA overtime apply to volunteer firefighters that are pay paid a flat rate per call? Are they totally out of the system? Yeah, I mean, I, that is going to be um, so volunteer uh, uh, firefighters. That's a whole other issue <laughs> that we could spend a lot of time covering because of this the nature of the relationship of the employment, quote unquote, employment relationship. Um, so again, this boils down to a f number one whether, in fact, that they are not considered employees. And, assu and assuming that that threshold's met, that they're actually not employees of the agency. Um, and if that is the case, then yeah, we're not worried about employment laws because they're not our employees. Uh, but that kind of begs the earlier question is, are we ensuring that, you know, that they're actually truly not an employee of the agency, but rather a, you know, legitimate volunteer and, and they don't meet the criteria for being an employee of the agency? Okay. Complex as always here. So let's, uh, a few comments and observations uh, briefly about the results of the poll, and then I know we've got additional material to cover here in our short time remaining. Yeah, so, you know, the uniform allowance was kind of the trick question, right? So bilingual is for sure, yes. Cash in lieu and health benefits, yes. Education incentive pay, yes. Uniform allowances, generally no, assuming that it's not a uh, 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 illegitimate uniform allowance. Um, so yeah, you could have a situation where it's all above if uniform allowance is not reflective of a reimbursement, but is actually a, you know, a smokescreen for additional pay. 
Okay. So um, moving forward here, compensatory time off. We've got some other questions that have come in around that. So uh, people are interested okay. in how that works. Right. So um, CTO is fairly common. Um, I would even say pretty much the general um, uh, standard now, which is that you know an employer and employee agree that uh, we're instead of getting cash for that overtime, the employee is going to get time off in the form of compensatory time off. Um, perfectly acceptable. Um, you know, there has to be an agreement in place for that to happen, and that's off. That's not a controversial issue. What can make things complicated is that CTO, much like cash overtime, is going to have those same, you know, more generous, less generous components, meaning that FLSA CTO relates to the CTO, much like the cash that's paid for FLSA overtime hours work. But if the agency decides to give more generous MOU overtime, oftentimes your system for CTO is aligned with their FLSA overtime system. And so that CTO um, you know, is still going to be received irrespective of whether they have FLSA overtime or not, because we have a more generous um, uh, threshold uh, for overtime. And that's okay too, and that's pretty common as well. But here's what I think you know is critical, unless you're deciding to just be more generous all around, is that we are dis differentiating between the FLSA CTO and non-FLSA CTO. Um, again, some agencies have decided, you know, we don't want to go through the hassle from a payroll system standpoint of having to have two separate pots, so to speak. We'll just pay everything more generously, um, which is fine, but as long as you understand that's what you're doing, right? You're making a policy decision to pay non-FLSA CTO in a more generous manner under the FLSA. We talked about that regular rate. Remember the 3288 versus the 3044. Same principle applies in CTO. You know, what's going to be their rate, so to speak, when we end up accounting for that CTO? Um, it's, if it's FLSA overtime, it's going to be at that higher rate. We'll see that later when we talk more about um, cash out. So um, in terms of crediting time, the crediting time is the one and a half standard, right? Um, Again, you know, you want to make sure, you know, I don't see as much double time anymore, but if it is double time based on your MOU, then obviously you're going to be crediting a certain amount. The double time, this is where you have the two separate pots situation. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately you got to make sure you're covering the one and a half hours threshold for um, FLSA overtime, CTO accrued. This is where we get into this earlier point on how cash is treated, because at the end of the day, there's going to come a point in time when the employee is going to cash out that accumulated CTO. For FLSA, they're going to get cashed out at that higher rate, because that's FLSA overtime. Um, so again, what's our cash out policy and payroll practice? Are we cashing out all of their CTO, FLSA, doesn't matter, at base rate time and a half? That's incorrect. It needs to be terminated. It needs to be cashed out 
as you can see, at the higher of the regular rate at the time of termination or separation or the average regular rate of pay during the last three years. So they're going to get a right to a higher rate when they cash out that CTO at one of those two higher rates, either time of termination or the average during the last three years. Okay, so this kind of summarizes what we um, have been talking about earlier that, you know, the banking at the one and a half, the cash out at the regular rate, um, sometimes they'll have questions about usage. Um, employee, um, there may be reasonable restrictions um, on the use of CTO, but you have to be able to show uh, disruption of operations. Otherwise, the employee has a right to use that CTO within a reasonable time period. Okay, so pay codes. Um, you know, this pay codes ultimately tie everything together because when we either we're doing it manually or we're um, handling all these calculations through a payroll system, the software or the person manually doing these uh, calculations is going to be looking at the pay codes. They're not going to be, you know, looking at the underlying meaning. Oftentimes, they they have a chart. They say, okay, this pay code goes for this, this pay code goes for that, and it's just a, a rote exercise. So the key for pay codes, of course, is ensuring that these pay codes are coded for this regular rate calculation in the correct manner, meaning that, you know, item on that includable list is coded as an item that goes into this regular rate calculation um, and not on the exclusion list. Um, sometimes you'll see systems, whether manual or automated, that um, just look at the pensionable compensation discussion or treatment alongside the regular rate and is one and the same. They're not. Uh, FLSA and CalPERS have a different standards. They we're talking about different standards, different laws in, a, in effect. So regular rate is something very different than pensional compensation. And then what are the actual hours work versus other uses of our code? So, you know, we talked about, you know, leave time. Um, are those coded, you know, in a way where it's not coded the same way as actual hours worked? Um, and part of that review process is going to be going through those classifications and, and, and making sure the appropriate pots are filled with the appropriate types of pays and pay codes. So let's talk about this Flores case. If you haven't heard of it um, yet, it's a very important case um, with respect to payroll practices and this regular rate of pay calculation. So this cash in lieu benefit was coded as on that exclusion pot. So we saw that list. Remember, cash in lieu is in the included. Well, prior to this case, this agency, as well as many others, um, they weren't alone. Um, because the common thinking was, is this is a benefit. It's not pay. And so it was coded as a benefit, excluded from the regular rate. Employees challenged it and won. And that's the law of the land, is that that cash in lieu is included as part of that regular rate calculation. The court even went further and said that because of the high percentage of cash being received by employees from this cash and lieu benefit, 
the entire health benefit amount, irrespective of whether the employee received cash, would be counted as compensation. Because remember I said that uniform allowance? Remember I said that it's not cut and dry because a court could look at it and say, well, you know, is this really just a smokescreen for pay? And that's what the court found with cash and lieu. And when a high, a high enough percentage is receiving cash. In this case, it was over 40%. Um, so it was a, the, cash, the, the cash amount was high. The number of takers of cash was high to the point that the amount of cash when compared to total benefits of health plan was over 40%. The court found that this was not a bona fide um, benefits plan and said that everything, including benefits. So you could have an employee that received $1,500 towards their premium. They never saw a dime in cash. It went straight to their premium. That would get counted in this regular rate of pay equation or calculation. It's going to depend on the percentage of cash versus total benefits. Unfortunately, the, the court didn't give us a threshold, so I can't tell you, well, what about 25% or even 20% or 15%? There's a risk assessment that we're going to have to go through when determining whether or not you meet that. So some payroll solutions is, you know, I mentioned this earlier, we shouldn't assume that our software consultant knows more than us. We want to verify, audit, assess, um, and ascertain you know, whether we are in compliance of the law. And then some final points to remember. And remember that your agency's FLSA overtime uh, calculation, uh, review it to ensure that it's in compliance uh, with the law. I think, you know, if you do find some concerns, you want to make sure you're strategizing, conferring with legal counsel. Um, there's a variety of reasons of that, including attorney-client privilege, um, to discuss concerns that you have that's covered and protected by that privilege, as well as implementing changes may require strategy vis-a-vis um, -vis the unions and employees. And then finally, ensuring that you're keeping up to date with developments in the law. I just mentioned one development, Flores, but that's not the only one. Laws are always changing in this arena. We want to make sure we're up to date on that as well. But some helpful links for you, um, an article on the FLSA, what we go through in an audit process, and you can take some tips from there to uh, do you know, some your own um, review as well. And then um, a link to a uh, set of blog posts and articles that we've compiled on the FLSA. And then finally, a link to uh, the DOL's Wage and Hour Division. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Oliver. We've got more to cover here, but we want to go to a polling question. You've heard a number of things that uh, Oliver is suggesting that you do as action steps. We always like to focus on action here in a coaching environment. So click off as many of these items uh, as you are taking away from the recommendations about what you might do to stay up to date. And while we're doing that, uh, I'd June, would you uh, please join us back in again on the discussion? And I'd like, as you are looking at these uh, suggestions from Oliver, if you could just describe briefly, you know, where you are in that in your agency, how you've approached that, maybe some suggestions, practice tips for your colleagues uh, to think about uh, as they're uh, giving attention to these items. Yeah, thank you. Um, we do struggle with um, the pay period versus, you know, the work 
experience. So I think that even listening to the seminar today, I'm going, I need to go back and look at that myself to make sure that we're on track with the distinctions. Um, so as a, as a result, because of the technology differences, I do believe that the employees um, are paid more on the generous side than being underpaid because of technology challenges. So um, yeah, if anyone does find software that is able to do all the dual calculations, I want to know that information also. We have also used um, Liebert Cassidy to help us when the Flores case came up. We asked them to do an analysis of all of our uh, pay and MOUs to help us make sure that we were calculating correctly. And I think that's a very valuable tip to use uh, resources like LCW to help validate or understand what you as a city are doing. So that is a good resource to tap into. And finally, I give a tip that says that during negotiations, I've always found it very valuable that it, that you include your payroll staff and those and HR staff that deal with FLSA all the time to look at the MOU language and do what you can to manage what's being negotiated or at least communicate with those at the table the consequences of some of the things that are being discussed so that you, you can do what you can to mitigate some of the unintended consequences of the creative ideas that show up in negotiation. Okay, very helpful advice there. Thank you very much. We can see from the polling results here that People are taking your suggestions to heart, Oliver, and uh, looking at uh, many actions they'd like to be taking to, to move forward with that. We're going to hit a couple more uh, questions that people have come in uh, with and some uh, polling questions here. We just want to cover a few more items before we do that. So let's uh, move forward with our items here. Um, we have the contact information. So the most important thing out of all these webinars is what are you going to do with what you're learning? So we encourage you to, to be reflecting on this. What do you take away from this? What are the things that you think are going to be important for your agency to be in compliance for you to work through this? Obviously, this is a very challenging arena because uh, em employees are looking for more and more freedom in their work processes and so on. And FLSA is obviously a very constricting environment. Uh, and they're also looking to, to opportunities to show what they can do with a little extra effort and so on. So you've got a lot of con uh, you know, colliding interests here and figuring out how you're going to navigate that is going to be very important. Um, we have the contact information for our presenters, very thankful for their work. I uh, want to go to a final polling question here while we're addressing some other questions that you've sent in uh, to see what uh, you gained out of uh, value from today. So click off as many items as you found to be helpful in today's uh, discussion. This is also a good way for you to reinforce that you're learning out of today, and that's why we ask a question like this. Uh, while that's happening, um, you know, maybe I'd again go to, um, well, we've got some questions here. Let's see if we can tick off a few of them fairly uh, quickly. Should the employer paid portion of health benefits be included in the regular rate of pay. You were describing a situation, mm -hmm. Oliver, where under Flores, uh, you know, everything yeah. got thrown into the bucket. Yes. How does that, uh, does it even go to employer-paid portions? Yes, and how does it, it can. That? It depends on um, It depends on that percentage. So what happens is in, in the assessment is we'll find out how much of, uh, how much is paid out in cash versus the total benefits. And 
take a and look at that percentage. If it's a significantly high percentage, so in the Flores case, it was over 40%, it's like 42, 43%, then we would include everything, including the employer paid um, um, portion of the benefits to that regular rate. Um, so it becomes a risk assessment. And that's a, also tied to a policy decision on the part of the agency on how they want to approach this issue. Okay. Uh, so one of the th one of the questions here is a philosophical one, but perhaps a very uh, good one for us to uh, focus in on here today, which is uh, this system seems to be very kludged, uh, according to the questionnaire. Uh, you know, is this the best qu uh, system that our nation can come up with? Uh, are there any efforts afoot to kind of rationalize this so that you know reasonable systems and reasonable people can find their way through? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, generally speaking, you know, there's 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 going to be you know kind of some foundational principles on on this that you know we understand and and namely you know just that we're understanding this you know regular rate of pay distinction and work period pay period distinction and understanding those kind of big understanding that there is distinction and nuance to it uh, um, and that I think will help us go a long way because then we can start to dive a little deeper afterwards. Okay. All right. And uh, we have an upcoming webinar we invite you all to register for. Uh, and just as a closing comments here, I'd like to go first to Oliver. Uh, any, what, what's a closing thought uh, briefly that you'd like to offer? And then we'll go to June and yeah. I'll, I'll close out the session. Yeah, I mean, I think one one of the common um, uh, questions I'll get and um, comments I'll get after is that you know I, I have now many more questions afterwards than I than I started with, and that's oftentimes the case with the FLSA. It's it's sometimes counterintuitive um, in many ways, but um, it's complicated, it's layered, it's nuanced. So um, it's okay to have those questions. As a matter of fact, that those kinds of, those questions will help you kind of you know understand it better and 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 be able to initiate uh manage good management practices going forward. Okay, just before June steps in, I do want to make a comment. We encourage you all to uh enter your questions. I observed that as questions came in, there were really things that Oliver was describing with examples or illustrations with other fact uh situations in the presentation and that's why we didn't get to as many of your questions as uh might have liked to uh because we would have been uh you know, not being able to cover as much material for you if we'd done that, and I think many of the questions got answered through the illustrations and examples. So June, what would you like and suggest your colleagues do uh, uh, other than order a tall drink uh, after today's session? That sounds better than what I was going to say. I was thinking of <laughs> mindfulness meditation before we do payroll. And so, you know, back to the the uh, recommendation before, it's like if you have questions, then I think it is important to seek expert ex advice from people like Oliver because they will help navigate the legal pitfalls that occur in this topic. Okay. And uh, this is Don Maruska on behalf of the CSMFO Coaching Program, thanking you all for your interest in this topic, for your attention to the details that are so important in finances for local government. And with uh, a promise that I'll check on the, any resources that are available about payroll systems and, and their handling of FLSA and to see how CSMFO might be able to help you uh, collectively crowdsource 
you know, what are some good solutions uh, for you to be looking at together if you don't have a solution that you feel is really meeting your needs. So with that said, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, June. Thank you, audience. And uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.